Hi, everybody. Steve Cady here at Bowling Green State University with our Doctorate in Organizational Change and Development or Development and Change program at the Schmidt Horse College of Business. We are very honored and I'm excited uh, because I'm a fan of Amy's and uh, I love her work and both in her writing and in her actual practical work out in the world and uh, her leadership in our field. I'm very grateful for that. And uh, so you're our super role model, Amy, for us around thought leadership, what it means to take your passion, take what you do and translate it into uh, content and things that people can read and learn from. I always say it's passive difference making, like passive income. You're making a difference while you sleep uh, by all the things that you've created for the world out there. And so not only have you done that, you've created a, a thriving practice. You've mentored and coached many people to do this work in very important ways. And uh, we are just super honored to have you part of this. Uh, Amy has also spoken in our doctoral uh, courses to our students. Uh, we have a doctorate in organization development and change. It is a doctorate that focuses on professional joy. And that is how people can can unleash their thought leadership in ways that gives them the ability to do what they want, where they want, with whom they want, making the living they want. And there's nothing better than that when you're doing it in service of something you're passionate about. And so uh, this is uh, a great program, a great fit. Amy's a super role model for us. So I uh, think this is gonna be a super session and I wanna turn it over to you to Amy. And Amy, again, thank you. My video is off only because I've been zooming on multiple sessions and for some reason it doesn't want me to use my camera in this Zoom session. So uh, I would be, you'd see me smiling much bigger than the picture that's there right ah. now. So thank you, Amy, for being here. Thank you, Steve and Matt and uh, the program for having us. Um, what a wonderful introduction and the thought of professional joy. I, I often say that, you know, I love my work. I love sharing uh, the work that we do. Um, and so these kinds of opportunities um, are, 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 are particular highlights of, of my day. And I'm particularly excited to do this one because I am joined by three of my colleagues and I also see some of our other colleagues um, on the phone. So what we're gonna talk to you today um, about is organization design. So let's get right into it. And um, let me introduce the team and then we're each gonna do a piece. And, and as, we, uh, as we start off, um, well, I'll let each uh, person uh, do a little bit more introduction. Um, I'm Amy Cates, Cates Kessler, um, been an organization designer for 25 years, uh, have, uh, and in June of 2020, 18 months ago, our firm Cates Kessler was acquired by Accenture, um, which gave us the opportunity to really go from a little tiny boutique of a dozen people to to really a global practice, we are now up to 45 people. And, um, and that's why I have, been, I have brought along some of my new colleagues, um, which I'm so excited to, to share how they will share how they are learning um, organization design. So maybe uh, just go around and say a quick hello, uh, Sarah, start with you. everyone. Thanks for having us here. Sarah Watson. I'm based in Chicago. Um, I have spent most of my career in professional services, so consulting of all kinds, uh, and that goes from health strategy, growth strategy, um, into talent and organization, um, and now have been with Kate Kessler for about 18 months. 
Julian. Hello everyone, Julian Chender from New York City, uh, background in organization design and development. And I've been working with Amy for about six, seven months now, and we're having a great time. Good, glad to be here. Joanna. Hi everybody, um, my name is Joanna Hendrickson and I have been with Accenture for eight years now and uh, have joined the cohort to what was called as part of the fellowship, uh, Kate Kessler, uh, about six months ago. And it has been really exciting uh, so far and um, look forward to what the future brings. Good, good. Well, we actually have a big group here of over 20 people. So rather than do introductions around, what I'm gonna encourage is um, people to use the chat. We'll have plenty of time for questions. As you speak up, just introduce yourself and let us know um, where, where you are. But let's get into the content I would suggest and then uh, we can get to know each other through the through your questions. Um, so we're gonna cover a little bit. I'm gonna speak very briefly about what is organization design. Um, turn it over to Julian to talk a little bit about the difference between org design and org development. Sarah will share a case study uh, of so you can get a picture of the work we do. And Joanna will give us some reflections on, on what it means to be um, an apprentice, uh, a Kate Kessler Fellow learning um, this work. And, and then again, plenty of time. So what do we mean by organization design? Um, for me, it's really about shaping human behavior at the group level. So uh, I often speak of about four lenses that we can look at organizations through. We can look at the individual and, and that is people who are passionate around coaching, individual assessment, talent development, learning um, kinds of work, thinking about how do we help uh, individuals sort of self-actualize and bring their best. We can think about the team. We can think about um, how do we create the right interpersonal interactions and roles within the team environment um, so that we have the dynamics that really create something better than any individual brings to the table. My lens um, has always, though, been sort of the team of teams, the organization, that invisible, multidimensional sort of abstract concept that shapes behavior um, as we work across uh, complex organizations, boundaries globally um, often. And we use four core organization design frameworks. And um, Steve and Matt are happy to share these slides with everybody, so we'll make them available um, to you. Uh, but these are our four, we think about the operating model. What is the picture of the organization we are trying to create? We work with the leaders of um, mostly global, complex, multidimensional matrixed organizations. Uh, they understand their business, but they don't have a language in which to talk about how do we think about what does good look like? What's the blueprint for our organization and how do the parts work together? So when we work with them, we are building an operating model, which is that picture, that outcome, that shared view of success. Underneath it, though, is our theory of human behavior in groups, which is Jay Galbert's STAR model. Developed in the 1970s, it's based on contingency theory that different strategies should drive different kinds of outcomes and different kinds of organizations. So what kind of strategy and culture do you need? What kind of capabilities do you need to build? Organization muscles and then Jay's, uh, one of Jay's many, many big insights was there are really four levers that a leader uh, can adjust to create a system that will build those capabilities and execute on that strategy, which is structure, when we talk about power, process, metrics, rewards, and people practices. 
We talk about activation, design-led org change. Once we have our operating model, how do we bring it to life over time through practice of right connections, right conversations, right know-how and leader behavior? And then, of course, our design process is a very inclusive, data-driven methodology that allows people to be involved over time, making decisions um, as they are doing the design work together. Um, so in the deck here, I think we have some slides that give some more detail. I'm not going to go into that detail on each one of those. And this is really what all of our writing is about. But let me just pause here to summarize before I turn it over to Julia. Operating model sets out the organization vision, how the parts will work together. STAR model is our mental framework we use to diagnose and design dynamic holistic systems that shape human behavior at the group level. Activation brings the operating model to life. It's the process of doing and learning, adjusting. Um, it's really organization uh, change. And the design process should be inclusive of voices and views and data-driven. So there you have it, a very quick tour of our core models. So big question, how is org design different than org development? Julian, over to you. Thanks, Amy. Um, so I, I straddle both worlds. Um, and I think it's very important to understand that there is a very blurry line between these two worlds. Uh, the way I like to conceptualize it is that org development thinks org design is part of org development and org design thinks it's something separate and it only matters because of the way it impacts your practice. So it's, this is an argument and a discussion I've had with multiple colleagues and the fundamental difference is only relevant in so much as it affects the way I actually deal with my clients. So I was hoping to share a little bit of my framework with you. And there is a three-part way of seeing the relationship between strategy, design, and development. So for me, strategy is really where do we compete? How do we win? And if we were thinking about building something, it's buying the plot of land. What is the field of play here? Design is to think about what are we building and what are the choices we have to make? to realize that strategy? How do we bring, make the best use of this plot of land? And that would be the architectural drawings, the blueprint. And then development would be, what do we actually do to bring this to life? And that is building the building or the construction. So if I wanted to sell jeans, I wouldn't build a, a, a house for myself. I would go to a place where people go to buy jeans. I'd buy the plot of land there. I'd build a store. And I would design the store and build it. So that's pretty much how it is. The, the interesting thing about the way we do our work is that we, we marry the design and the development in a way that most people don't. And we are clear about a boundary, but we are also clear about inclusion. And I would say that the, the most fundamental thing that attracted me to this work is that it's design with development techniques, practices, and values. So the way we do our work is fundamentally using the action research cycle, the core of organization development, a diagnostic model, like the STAR model, and we do an inclusive and participatory process. We build this on large scale change group interventions, such as uh, the conference model and future search from the 1990s, everything that Billy Alvin and Barbara Bunker were working to, to codify uh, really informed the way we do our work. We, we found that in doing this work, doing it with a subset of the organization that is a cross-section and really inclusive, 
leads to much greater outcomes than doing it with design teams at the executive level. And that is a way of building buy-in from the beginning. And I think really what differentiates us from some of our competitors. So that is where I see us bridging the gap and also building a, a unique practice. So now for a case study, I'll pass it on to Sarah. Great, thank you. You know, I, I'm going to start with a little separate um, background and then I'll get into the story. So I recently gave a capability building lecture to some HR folks at a large life sciences firm. Um, after walking through the core frameworks that Amy just walked through and the design process, someone said, hey, you know what? The design process is like really great in theory but our leaders have no patience to wait for an assessment. And they really wanna go straight towards designs and boxes and lines. And so, you know, while you can certainly do that, we wouldn't advise it. There are, there are a few big cautions that I'll provide um, to jumping straight to design. Uh, you may end up designing these really marvelous organizations that are fit for another company or that don't actually achieve your business strategy. Or maybe if you jump straight to design with your, with your key leader, you start, you'll have challenges actually activating that design because you haven't brought the constituencies along the journey that are essential to actually standing that up. So I, I start with this story because in the example that we're gonna walk through, the assessment findings help to under, uncover several layers of complexity and time horizons that made this particular situation especially challenging. So for this client, it's a large healthcare client. They own several aspects of healthcare products and services. They are, you know, healthcare is an industry that is just constantly evolving and new entrants are coming in every single day trying to disrupt your business. Um, they are, they're an organization that had made several acquisitions, but had never really taken the time to integrate them into the core business or understand how those um, acquisitions were going to evolve the, the offering for the company. And they had new aspirations to enter into new kinds of business models. So this company was undergoing just a number of external and internal changes that, that called for a new organization. So the scope of the work was to help stand up a new business unit that would do all the things that never really got done uh, in terms of, of really shaping a, and influencing the healthcare industry, start wiring all those things together to, to evolve uh, the kind of service expectations that you receive within health. So, in the assessment phase, we did a lot of the traditional work. So we clarified the strategic ambitions, we, we outlined the capabilities, you know, because this was talking about a new division, instead of doing problems to solve, we really shaped it more as design criteria. So if we have clarity on who our customers are and the PLs that we have, um, what, what is that gonna enable us to do? And if we want to, we, or excuse me, any organization design needs to create a digital experience that really wraps around the physical experience. So these were some of our design criteria that we knew if we designed an organization that could achieve those things, we would achieve our strategic ambition. So also as a part of the assessment report, we developed three 
options of organization models that could be viable for their, for their future state. Now, normally what you would do uh, is share the view of, and here's where you are today. And that establishes a sense of common ground that you can then build the knowledge, expand the thinking when you're introducing alternative organization models. And the reality of this client was that it was a new division and beyond and anything beyond just the lift and shift of talent and assets from the legacy organization into this new division felt so far-fetched that the, the leaders really lacked the attention span to talk about anything aspirational. And so what the, the, another big aha moment was, wow, there is still so much controversy around even here's where we are today um, due to unanswered questions or maybe they weren't ready to push the bounds of thinking. And so our design work which I would say is normally, you know, here's where we're gonna go. And then we help them outline the pathway to get there, really had to pause and refocus on, okay, wait, first, before they can even start talking at the three, five year level, we need to bring them to the, I need to understand just my first baby step in, or in what my organization is gonna look like. And so to aid this conversation, if we, Advance to the next slide, please. To aid this conversation, we introduced this frame, this three horizons framework. And what it helped the what it helped them do was take that really huge aspirational strategy that you see um, in the top left and break that down into, into different pieces and phases to say, okay, here's what we're trying to achieve out of that strategy. Within the first um, within the first year, here's how much of it we're trying to achieve within year two and three. Here's what we're trying to achieve within year five. And so, what that allowed us to do, it, it was honestly like a pressure valve got released because suddenly all of the leaders were realizing that they were talking to each other on different time horizons of strategy. And so, I share this story and I and I share this framework with you really to just say that the org design work itself is not just about the like developing great organization designs. It's actually about meeting your clients where they are and helping them gain greater alignment on key enterprise decisions that need to occur. So I will pause there and I'll and pass it over to Joanna. Sarah. Um, so hi, everybody. Again, for those who joined since, my name is Joanna Hendrickson, and um, I am going to talk to you about my experience as a fellow as part of the Kate Kessler Fellowship. Um, so after, just to give you a little bit of background, after Kate Kessler joined Accenture, they have been working really hard uh, to extend their practice within our company. And since joining, they had so far three cohorts of fellows, about 10 each, um, that are going through approximately like a nine month journey uh, to learn Kate Kessler org design methodologies and then actually ultimately practice those methodologies on the Kate Kessler sourced projects. 
So I was part of the cohort too, so right in the middle. And I thought this experience was um, really like no other in the, the corporate career that I had so far. I've been with the company for eight years and my primary experience was in change management. So I am reasonably new to org design. Um, so the follow fellowship was um, structured uh, in two parts. One was learning for workshops, uh, teamwork and homework, where Greg Kessler would walk us through Kate's Kessler methodologies and simple scenarios to help us visualize them better. Then we would, each of us would join uh, a Kate's Kessler project, typically um, led by one of the Kate's Kessler managing directors and actually apply uh, to what we've learned from the workshops on the job. And also each of us was assigned a one-on-one -on -one coach, which was super helpful along the way um, to help us whatever individual needs we had. Uh, so I thought the combination of learning and coaching and on the job focus was a really good balance. Um, and it gave us a really good opportunity to both learn and practice new things. So while I was really excited, it was also very interesting to uh, learn a new craft mid-career. So sometimes I like I had this feeling that I'm straight out of college. In a way, it's good, but at the same time, kind of an interesting, weird feeling um, since it's been a few years. Um, there were a few things that I thought were really different from my uh, consulting uh, career so far at Accenture. So number one was the scope. We often, when we would come in, uh, we would have to define the scope, help the client actually define the scope uh, and what we would be solutioning for as part of the org design. Whereas in the past, I was actually ex uh, used to having a defined scope uh, and we were just coming in to uh, implement a solution, which also that uh, led to the output of the project to be somewhat open-ended. Like you follow methodologies, but ultimately, as Sarah earlier mentioned, depending on where the client is at right now, um, the, pro uh, the, product, the output would vary vastly from client to client. Uh, another thing that I thought was uh, really interesting and I really enjoyed was the designing with clients and the co-creation part of it, uh, where the client actually had a big ownership on what the deliverables are and um, versus in the past, again, it was often our team was responsible for end-to-end -end solutions. So that was really, uh, really interesting and fun, actually. I really enjoyed that. And then, and last one was what I thought was uh, also interesting, like doing actually multiple clients at a time. Uh, as big as Accenture is, we actually typically had one client at a time, but uh, given the also the past of Kate's Kessler team, small and mighty, uh, that they actually would lead multiple client um, engagements at the time. So I thought that was really interesting. Uh, I really learned a ton of resources uh, during my fellowship so far. And one that I also wanted to highlight for you today was one of the frameworks that you can find in Amy and Greg's new book. It's called Front uh, Back Organizational Model. Maybe some of you already know it. It talks about the, how the structure components of the organization are wired together. Um, understanding what is in the front, which is what's customer facing and versus the back, which is often technology and how 
the organization can scale and innovate. And also the middle that actually business strategy that uh, and offerings that tie those together. I, I thought this framework uh, was phenomenal and mind blowing for me actually. Um, it really helped me understand like why clients make certain decisions, why they are the way they are. Um, so like kind of learning that non-hierarchical power dynamics. I, I thought that was a really good framework to kind of help uh, me place the client. So again, if you don't know it, I would totally recommend checking it out. Um, all in all, I really enjoyed the Case Kessler Fellowship. I'm super excited to be here. It stretched my thinking in so many ways. Uh, and it was really an amazing experience. Uh, I really am proud that Accenture and Case Kessler actually make together such a phenomenal investment um, and really look forward to what the future brings. Um, so that is all I had uh, to share with you, but would love to hear any questions that you may have. Good, good. Well, thank you to my colleagues. So we have a question here. Let's start this off. Uh, Brandon, hi, nice to see you again. And uh, I encourage everybody to put their video on so we can make this a conversation. Um, so I see your question here, but maybe just uh, give us a little bit more about it. And uh, I'm thinking to toss this to Sarah to answer. <laughs> just heads up. Sure. I, I, as Sarah was talking, I could totally relate to um, a scenario where the client wants to hire you to work on the structure of the organization. Um, and it's presented as though they have a very clear understanding of what the business is. They just, you know, don't really have uh, great ideas or they'd like to see some, some other ideas uh, about the future. And as uh, you're working with them um, and talking about how the business should be different, it's clear that the way they think the organization behaves today is quite different than how I think it behaves today. <laughs> um, and that can be some of the most valuable um, insights that you provide to the client. So I was just curious if, is that a standard part of your process or is it really, um, you know, just as you take the work as it comes? Yeah, we're, we're pretty, I'd say, inflexible about the assessment process. Now, in that there needs to be an assessment assessment of some sort. Now that can have a few different flavors. So it can, it may be we we do 10 interviews with the executive team, or it could be we do 70 interviews with all leaders across all parts of the organizations, and we do a focus group, and we do a survey, and we did like, so the magnitude of the assessment can certainly vary depending on the size and scope uh, and complexity of the organization that we're talking about. Um, however, the assessment part itself is a non-negotiable uh, because otherwise we don't know what we're, what we're really solving for. But I think it's an interesting question of, you know, do how much do we do on the, the current state? And, and so we, we were just on a call before this where we were talking about that. Um, we don't spend a lot of time just mapping, you know, what is, you know, uh, which takes a lot of time. It is really important, though, I think, Brandon, to your point of having the client system understand what is. How did we get here? What was the problem we were trying to solve the last time we did a design? Because as we know, many organizations, you know, sort of oscillate between centralization, decentralization, a more functional design. No, let's push uh, power back out to the markets or to the business units. So what were we trying to solve the last time? Where did we end up? What's working? What's not? And what do we want to adjust? I think is a 
more the way we ask the question rather than just, okay, what's current state, what's future state, and there's some sort of path in between in a simplistic way. That's really helpful. Thank you for, for uh, the extra information. I, can I ask one follow-up? Um, in terms of activation, I'm sure that there are some clients who want to hire you for the design aspect, but you know, go another direction with activation. Um, do you have um, a standard answer to that? <laughs> I guess in terms of yeah. how you partner with clients. Sure, we often work walk into a situation where maybe another firm, you know, they've been working with the McKinsey on a strategy and they have an operating model, or they've done some work themselves. Um, I did one earlier this year where you know, they had it all laid out, but it was just a PowerPoint presentation. So the activation, why we call it design-led organization change, you usually have to step back a little bit and there is design work in the sense of how does the wiring fit together and how are we going to bring it to life? So it's not just, we have a design now, we knew workshops of, you know, here, be different, you know, behaviors. It's, it's really the mechanisms, decision-making, roles and accountabilities, what are the new forums? What are the new conversations and the business management flow that we have to design? Metrics and such. Thank you. Let's get some other questions. What else is on your mind? Who else is uh, here? Grace. Let's, what's the question? No, we can't hear you. Can you hear me now? Yes. Classic Zoom mistake. Um, Great to be here. Uh, my question is: well, First, tell us a little bit of who you are, if if you don't mind. Just, I'm sorry. Oh, sure. No, nope, no problem. Uh, my name is Grace Eichmeier. My pronouns are she/her, and um, I work at Amnesty International USA. The reason why I'm here is uh, Julian and I used to work together uh, many years ago, and uh, he's very good at getting the word out. So, um, <laughs> pleasure to be with you all. And. Um, I, I work on uh, organizational change uh, inside Amnesty, and you know we've all sort of seen the world change in significant ways over the past couple of years, and then the influence on sort of human rights and um, change fatigue. I think is quite real in our organization, and we've also had a lot of staff turnover, particularly at our senior leadership levels. And so my question is just about your perspective on. Um, engaging in organization design or how you sort of approach, um, you know, uh, an inclusive participatory process when you have so much leadership turnover. Yeah, uh, let, let me turn this one to uh, Joanna um, from your change background um, and thinking about org design and in that kind of environment. Any thoughts and then can open it up to others. Mm. Uh, I would definitely start with maybe like, especially anytime you have a new um, a new joiner coming, right? I would say um, you would obviously start with that leadership that's coming in and work with them in terms of what that, um, like what are their expectations, how they can work with the organization um, to kind of like to both Meet the uh, meet their responsibility as well as their expectations. So hopefully there is not necessarily an additional turnover to create more. So definitely doing some change management on both sides that you know to ease the concerns of the actual employees, but also of the that leadership coming in. Other other thoughts about that? Let's change. Fatigue is real. 
one of the things I think I'm I'm learning about is how frequently a new leader will want to do their own org design as their first impact on the organization to put their stamp on it. And I wonder, my curiosity about, about what you see here is, is does that immediately push them out because they see that it's too difficult? And so that would be something to explore with them when they come in and say, hey, I want to redesign it because I have a vision. It's, well, do we need to do that right away? Building on Other my, thoughts? Building on my colleagues. Uh, oh, can you hear me? Okay. Um, building on my colleagues, I think in situations where there's a lot of turnover, first of all, you'll want to clarify what the scope and the, who the executive sponsor is of the work, first of all, because uh, those can be situations where people want to buy or design services for other areas of the business that are bugging them. <laughs> and so a caution of make sure you know, like what, who you're, who's making design decisions at the end of the day, and what is the real scope of the org design work that you're talking about so that you you have a, a grounding, first of all. And then secondly, in terms of grounding, um, these are really like highly sensitive areas where you don't want to make, you know, part of our work and working with key leaders is developing relationships along the way. And in that relationship development, you don't want to build alliances <laughs> too soon because you need to figure out, you need to be able to objectively assess like what is solid ground versus what is some of the, the hearsay or the, the noise. And so that just takes time to, to do. And so in those situations, I would say, those are two tips that I, can, I would provide um, to help you get your bearings in that organization uh, and, and create some grounding. Yeah. <laughs> And Grace, you know, having worked in a lot of, um, oops, we have some feedback. Having worked in a lot of not-for-profits, what we often find is that design is often done around people, um, which, you know, makes sense, but in small organizations where people have very specialized skills, um, and, you know, I see your note there, people are in interim roles, we're not making hard decisions, we, we're used to consensus decisions, so there is nobody to make the hard decision, to Sarah's point. Um, it's very hard because we don't have the kind of financial metrics that and performance metrics in a corporation that make it a little easier to see so that it's hard to assess. And these things kind of drag on because we've confused org design and dealing with some talent issues and, uh, and leadership issues. So, um, and unfortunately it creates friction you know, it creates interpersonal friction, it creates uncertainty. Um, and so, you know, when I've stepped into these situations in the past, we've worked with Girl Scouts, we've worked with International Rescue Committee, we work with uh, Special Olympics, um, with Hillel, uh, Minds Matter, many, many different kinds of not-for-profits, uh, foundations, Robin Hood Board Foundation, Gates Foundation. Um, you know, you have to go right back to the star model. So what's the strategy? What's the capability? Take the people out of it. Start with the blank piece of paper, a good assessment, um, and involve people in the work so that you know they are really truly building something together. 
And so it's not these little restructurings that kind of wear at people, but never feel like they're settled. Thanks for everyone's thoughts. Someone else, what's, who's on the phone? What's going on in your organization? What's on your mind about org design? I actually have a quick question sort of that could be related to that. Hi, uh, Mickey Steiner, he is him. Uh, I'm a connection of Julian's, the fellow AU MSOD graduate. Um, and I, I was also, you know, you mentioned the star model. I, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit um, to um, sort of how, how the star model was um, in the, case study you talked about, sort of how you used it for diagnosis in that example? Yeah, so the STAR model, I would say that we we really started, we, we stayed kind of at the top of the STAR model in the, the current, in the, the case study I provided, because it was really around, um, during the assessment, we clarified the strategic ambitions, capabilities, and the design criteria. So all that's really the top of the STAR model, the strategy. Um, and our work wasn't, it wasn't to design their strategy. It was to make sure that there was clarity as to what the strategy was that they already aspired to. Um, and then start to, you know, as I showed that other framework, that strategy was like their end goal. They had a hard time figuring out until we introduced that horizon framework, what needed to be possible in the one year timeframe versus the three versus the, oh, then the end goal, got it. So all of that was in the, that like the top of the star model and then uh, similar and then capabilities. So that is obviously the next link into the star model. Uh, so it really focused on that. And then the organization, uh, the organization models that we constructed were actually um, variations of like different operating constructs. And so that would actually show up in the operating model framework that Amy, that Amy talked through. All right, cool, thank you. Mm -hmm. And then, and, sorry, and then I'll connect that thought too. And then once we decided on the, once we made final decisions on the operating model, that informs other choices that are made across the other star points. Yeah, and maybe uh, Suyun's Bay's uh, question also goes to you, Sarah. Um, and, and maybe you wanna just, let me let you ask the question sort of verbally so we're clear, we make sure we're clear on, uh, on what's on your mind behind it. Well, sorry, I didn't join your uh, conversation from the beginning, um, but uh, I joined uh, all enough, but I have a question about, um, so I think you're talking about healthcare industry, but I'm from retail and fashion industry. I'm teaching a college students in that area, um, and fashion merchandising and some business aspects of fashion and retail industry, but I, my question is, if you have seen any uh, organization factors or any other um, uh, forces that hinder or facilitate the design, your uh, consulting process, and um, maybe if you, I don't know if you work with different industries, but do you think types of industries matter? Or are there any other uh, organization factors that affect the processes 
to be easier or to be more challenging, for example? Yeah, you know, I, from an industry perspective, I don't know that the, I'm not convinced yet that the industry makes it more or less complicated, um, but there are nuances about industries. And so like within healthcare or within providers, so health systems, they're very consensus driven is the way they operate. A lot of those management teams operate. And so that's something to consider. It's, uh, you, it's rare to get just like one decider. They operate in more of a committee kind of structure versus um, maybe uh, like high tech or maybe some, some industrial products. You end up working with a lot of engineers, which have a really different mindset and approach when you're bringing them to conversations about org design. Um, so I think the they all have like little nuances, but I wouldn't say the work changes necessarily. You just have to be sensitive to, um, you have to be aware of who's in the room or who you're working with so that you can adjust your conversation um, to that style to be most effective. And then let's see, uh, oh wait, hold on. Uh, I, I think the other, I, I think the place where it gets really interesting is in organizations that have experienced a lot of M&A activity, whether um, it is acquisitions or in mergers or if it's divest, di things that have been divested um, because you often find organizations that want to keep operating in their individual <laughs> entities. Um, and so usually we're brought in to help uh, I wouldn't say do post-merger integration work necessarily, but we would be like maybe five, 10 years down the line when they're like, we just still aren't operating like one company yet. And so how do we rethink this? Um, so those are, I would say that that is a, an, a factor that really influences uh, complexity and the global, whether a company is global uh, or not and the number of countries they operate in, that, that element or that dimension added also adds another layer of, of complexity. Those would, I'd say, are the big things. And I can add a little bit um, that I've seen recently is, um, like, is leadership alignment. So a couple of things like I've seen when there are like in-flight activities going on that may seem similar and that kind of hinders like what kind, uh, how much of uh, actual freedom do we have to design this area of the organization? So the importance again to making sure that the design process is, is at a high level from the leadership perspective is very important because it's like if you don't have the authority to, desi to design certain part of the business that will definitely hinder your process. So just making sure to be aligned on that early is very important. The thing I would add to that is, it's interesting, I, I think both to Sarah and, you, and, and Joanna's uh, comments, that you know, depending on what the company is going through, it makes more similar patterns in industry. But different industries definitely have what we call you know, different flywheels. I mean, in consumer packaged goods, brand kind of companies, fashion, I mean, marketing, merchandising is where the power is. You look at an industrial, it's you know manufacturing and operations. You look at pharmaceuticals, it's all about R&D. 
So the power center is in different places, tends to be in different industries, but where they are in the growth life cycle, if they're going trying to integrate a set of um, acquisitions, that makes them more alike. And I think that's what's fun about our work is consulting of working with different companies. You, you start to see these patterns. And I think what, what I often say is, is, is the, the secret to being good at this work is being able to separate what is universal, what is common across industries, cultures, kinds of companies, uh, because these, these are patterns of companies that are trying to manage global, local, integrate a set of acquisitions, develop new products and services, go into new markets, and what is actually unique to a particular context. Um, and often, when if we mix what is universal and what is unique, then we actually come to some wrong diagnostics and often um, incomplete solutions. Uh, so, so, yeah, it matters, but, but maybe not as important um, in this kind of work. Um, so some interesting, let's, let's pick up, uh, we have maybe time for one or two other questions. Um, Julian, I'm going to give this Steve's question to you, because I think from a, an outsider's perspective, um, how, you know, when what I take and maybe what I'm understanding here, Steve, maybe see if we got this right, is we do a lot of writing. We do a lot of uh, speaking and webinars. We create models. We make videos. Um, how important is that to, is it to selling? Is it to doing the work? Is it to creating the work? What's, what's underneath the question there? <clears throat> exactly that. Why, why create all of the models, the collateral, the everything else? I, I think they serve multiple purposes. Uh, my, my, uh, then the focus of our program is around inspiring our students to be on this thought leadership trajectory. <clears throat> I think there are people that do a lot of really good work. And I often uh, think of thought leadership and subject matter expertise as two separate things. Subject matter experts are great at recipes and putting recipes into action. Thought leaders write and create new recipes, and new meal plans, and new, new dinner experiences. And and they share them, they write them, and people pick them up and adopt them and send them to their friends. And, and I'm, I'm on the, my passion is inspiring thought leadership. And we need more people in our field documenting, creating, and disseminating what they're learning and knowing in credible ways so that we can transform our field, make these topics um, central to organizational organization vitality as opposed to peripheral in some cases, or always trying to figure out ways to get, you know, get it in. You know, um, and so just, to, you know, that that's my passion. And I want to bring it down to the personal level and a very practical place of our students in our program getting that bug. That's my bias. That's my kind of my, my agenda item. And so you're doing that well. And I'm these are wonderfully accessible uh, concepts, meaning that they are both meaningful and good and they can be understood. Julian, let me oh. ask you to comment on that. <laughs> well, I, I would say there's there's a very practitioner-driven purpose to why we do this thought leadership and that it, it fundamentally helps us do our work and fundamentally helps other people do good work in the field. And one of our core values is this idea of generosity and growing the field. We don't just do consulting work. We do a lot of teaching and training, and that is not necessarily um, to 
gain business, although sometimes it does that, but really it's to fundamentally instill the ideas and the practices in the field and to grow the field too. So for people who, who aren't part of the field to get exposure to the field. And I think what the, the mixed media approach and the very approachable point of view is, is we use it during our, our consulting. So we will have our clients read chapters of the books or watch videos. Um, I was recently doing a business development project where they said, so what is organization design? And I had a five minute video of Amy describing organization design that I could just send to them. And they said, great, we're ready. And that was, was a lot easier than me saying, so let me draw it out for you over an hour and a half meeting. So there's a lot of it that does help the selling, but it's really fundamentally about codifying knowledge for future generations, I think, and also using it in our, in our practice. So all of the models and methods are things that we've learned through our practice that we then codify and publish so that we can continue to use them. Because if they work for us, they might work for someone else too. If I may add one question to this, what are your tips? Maybe the two or three things that when you're creating these things that you must do in order to make them stand out or be useful. Uh, and, or maybe the one to three things definitely don't do. Like, you know, just the, at, at that kind of very practical level. The first thing for me is to be passionate and believe in what you're writing or publishing or, or building. Because if you're doing a, a thought leadership piece just to do a thought leadership piece, it's not going to come through as very convincing. And I've had a lot of thought leadership pieces that I've started and didn't finish because I realized that it wasn't where my passion was. And I think if you have passion, then other people will have passion. That's something that I found a lot is, is it's contagious. And if you believe in what you're doing, people will buy into it. Um, the second thing I would say is write for different audiences but don't write for all audiences at once. So if you need to, you can have the same idea. It's a, it's a, it can be a two page idea, but you publish five different papers on it for five different audiences. And it's going to be very important to have it written in different ways so that it's approachable and accessible to those different audiences. We have books that are meant for practitioners and we have books that are meant for C-suite executives and we don't mix the two. That's awesome. And I often, what we're working on is this notion of three audiences gen generically. One is an academic audience, one is a professional audience, and one is a popular audience. And I would kind of equate, you know, the C-suite, the professional audience, the Harvard Business Reviews, the, the very frontline practitioner, it's a popular press audience, and then there's the academic audience. And I try to encourage everybody to be able to dance in those three or work in those three areas because I believe it gives the thought leader the confidence to step in front of any group and be, and, and be that authority in that area that they're passionate about. So that's, Julie, you spot on, passion. It's what we work on, joy. Professional joy is rooted in that because you'll be, you'll, you'll be able to stay with it long enough and persevere. So thank you, that's really well said, Julian. And Julian has done some very nice uh, writing in the uh, OD uh, space. You can you can look that up. Um, but that that is really what motivates us because we're dealing with the thing about organization. It is such an abstract kind of 
concept that the thrill for me is when I see a client get it, understand it. A leadership team all of a sudden understand their organization. It's visible to them. They feel like they own it together. They're making choices about it together. And they're looking past people and individuals and they're seeing the connections between the parts of the organization. And that starts to, then we, it depersonalizes. It takes out friction and all of a sudden you truly have that alignment, right? That we're always trying to get to. And without giving people the tools to visualize, um, you know, what Joanna was talking about, the front back organization, um, you know, it means nothing, but all of a sudden it, it is, it's a, it's a huge thrill when people say, oh yes, that's what we've been trying to talk about. Um, so that's really what our work is. It's not about being org design experts to tell clients what to do. That's what they think they're hiring us for. What they're really hiring us is to give them a language to design their own organization. One more thought, one more question, question uh, thought. Um, and I think there's some, I'm just looking, uh, maybe, maybe Rachel's question, a, it's a really good one. In a, in a way we've been talking about it, um, building trust in an early stage. I think the most important thing to build trust is as a consultant is for the client to understand what we are there to do. And that mix of, we are going to, bring expertise. Our expertise is in the design process. And that process gives the client confidence that we are not going to just throw them into room to generate ideas and leave them hanging. But, but there's a process of involvement, of shaping the discussion, of helping them document, of, of describe their ideas, of look at different choices, understand the implications, and, and come together and make decisions. Um, and as we take them through that process, that, and knowing that we have one and it's well tested, that's what builds a lot of trust. Obviously, you know, having content, having the books and all of that. But I don't think you need to be the thought leader and the creator um, to create trust with your client. They have to feel that you are an honest broker in the conversation. You want the best for them, and you will really guide them through what, what can be very contentious discussions. You're talking about organization, you're talking about power, you're talking about jobs, you're talking about roles, status, career. Um, and, and so having, you know, building that trust is certainly important um, right up at the front. Thank you. Any other closing thoughts? Otherwise, thank you really for inviting us. Um, pleasure to be here. We put uh, the link to our website. There's lots of information there and the link to our, our YouTube videos. Also the books are on Amazon, uh, but uh, always happy to reach out please to any one of the four of us um, if you're interested more in the field or what we do. Well, thank you, Amy, and thank you, everybody. Um, I look forward to us connecting more and more. Um, our, our students, we have a just an amazing group of doctoral students, and we have about 45 and three cohorts doing very practical work. The average age is about uh, 45 to 50 years old with 25 years of experience. A very diverse group of people, both in uh, age, gender, ethnicity, 
and uh, pro professional backgrounds. And um, um, we are on a mission and, and, and I have a passion around this notion of thought leadership and service of the joy in our work and doing and making that kind of difference. So you've been a real gift, Amy. Um, all of your team is a super gift. I saw you beaming with pride as they all spoke and shared. And, uh, and I do think you have a lot to be uh, proud of in terms of what you've done. So I look forward to more as we go into the future. Um, uh, I'm just super grateful. Thank you. Good. We're happy to be here and continue the relationship and to build it. So awesome. I'm going to put in the link uh, uh, if people are interested about what our program stands for. I just put in the link a little um, uh, connection to the a little comparison document for our program and what it offers and stuff like that. Um, I also have more that I can share with the audience, people that attend around professional joy. I'm doing some research and work on that. So I'll, you all will hear more about that as we go. So. Um, is there anything else that we have, uh, Matt, before we say goodbye? Nope, no, we're good. All right. Well, bye, everybody. Have a super day. <laughs>